0: hello my friends my name is madge this is the madge cast and this is a podcast where we talk about resilience and resistance in a time of huge what-the-fuckery in america so this was another week of madness i won't get into all of it because you're probably already aware but yeah things are pretty scary um I'm kind of annoyed that folks are just now really digging into the story of how Russia worked to get the Donald elected. I mean, Hillary said all this stuff in the third debate a couple months ago, but no one listened to her. Thanks, James Comey. And Donald himself keeps nominating the worst people ever to his cabinet, people who seem like they specifically want to destroy whatever agencies they're put in charge of. Meanwhile, I am trying to play my small part, and that's mostly what I want to talk about today. I want to talk, first of all, about a training that I went to yesterday called Community Organizing in Troubled Times. And secondly, I'm going to talk about this awesome book that I'm reading called The End of Protest by Michael White, who was one of the co-founders of Occupy Wall Street. So, first, I want to talk about this training. I was really glad that I went. Um, It was really great to chat with people who are concerned about the same things that I'm concerned about and just to get to know some of the faces in the community here. The training itself was pretty interesting. Um, The guy who ran it is uh, an experienced community organizer who's spent something like 30 years going into a lot of different neighborhoods in different countries to support and teach marginalized folks how to organize and advocate on their own behalf. And it was really great to hear about all that. My favorite part of the training was probably this group exercise we did, where um, we made some lists. So the first list was Basically just a list of all the problems that our world is facing right now. So, you know, climate change, homelessness, war, racial discrimination, uh, inequality of, for women, um, and on and on and on. Tons of stuff. Uh, the second list that we made was a list of, um, of things that describe the world where we want to be, right? So the vision for us as activists. So people shouted out things like safety, a peace, opportunity for everyone, fairness, universal health care, a sustainable relationship with our environment, and um, you know economic equality, so on, and so on. Then the third list we made was um, we were asked to list qualities of a good relationship with uh, an individual person, so like choose a person that you have a great relationship with, and let's describe what those relationships look like. So some of the qualities that people shouted out were empathy, listening, kindness, honesty, laughter, and so forth. Um, Then we put the three lists up on the wall, the first list of all of our problems on the left, the second list of all of the things we want to see in the world on the right, and in the middle, uh, the trainer posted these lists of qualities of a good interpersonal relationship. And so then we talked about how those three lists relate to each other. And through discussion, we came to um, the conclusion that all of those small skills that we listed in the third list of how you build and maintain a good relationship with an individual person, these are the exact tools that activists use to get from where we are to where we want to be. And the process of becoming a leader is learning how to practice those skills um, with more and more people on larger and larger levels. Basically, what this all boiled down to was the concept that power lies in relationship. And to the extent that we remain isolated from each other, our problems will continue and even get worse. And I really... I don't know. For me, I really appreciated talking about this explicitly because it's something that I've been thinking about and circling around. Um, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on my podcast before, but rootlessness is something that is very deep in my psychological makeup, right? Like when I was a kid, we uh, lived a very itinerant lifestyle. So by the time I was 11, I had gone to something like 14 different schools. So moving around a lot and sort of, um, you know, being in charge of my own stuff and not getting that involved in everyone else's feels kind of natural to me. And um, I think that this sort of, you know, like a Rolling Stone freedom type of uh, freedom in isolation, right, go hand in hand, and they're kind of encouraged in our culture. I know, um, I went to see Amy Schumer, a couple weeks ago, and she was very funny. And one of the first things she said was like, Hey, everybody, thank you for putting on a bra and leaving your house because putting on a bra and leaving your house can kind of suck. And, um, that's, you know, a very common thing to say in our culture right now. But, um, as much as, you know, I, I like to not leave my house as much as anyone, but, um, I'm not sure that we can consolidate power, each of us in our own house, right? And uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure that we can't. I think that um, that in order to make connections with each other, um, that requires and also encourages a certain level of stability. And um, it's something that I'm really thinking about because I've been kind of living this, um, what they call a location-independent lifestyle for a while. I've been traveling a lot, um, I'm living in Boulder right now, but I'm not sure if I will be forever. I'm not sure if it's quite my kind of town, but, um, until I make those decisions, like I need to connect with other people, right? Um, and that happens in physical space in the place where we are. So it was cool to talk about that with, um, with the other trainees at the, at the meeting yesterday. And I think that, um, it's important to connect with other people physically for a couple of reasons. First, clearly, because it allows us to work together and take part in the same effort. And secondly, it just makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> and maybe that, um, it seems maybe not quite as important for me to feel better as, you know, as it is to actually be a part of a movement. But I think that both of those are Uh, two parts of the same whole, right? So to be effective as part of a group, I need to be operable. I need to function (laughs) and spending time with other people who share my concerns helps me remain operable and functional. So, you know, you kind of can't have one without the other. So that was all great. Um, That being said, there was a moment toward the end of the training where um someone shared a story about how they had shamed a politician publicly at a fancy party. And other folks started saying stuff like, "Well, I wouldn't judge you for that because we all lose our temper sometimes, But um, I don't think it's the best way to go." And then it got then the discussion started to get a little bit squishy, and everyone, a lot of people anyway, started rallying around this idea that shame isn't as good of a tool as love and this is where i started to get um i started to squirm in my chair a little bit i started to feel a little bit less on board because uh i don't know you guys sometimes being a liberal feels like we're bringing hugs to a gunfight right i mean i'm I think sometimes the most effective solution is to, you know, sit down and have a meeting of minds and compromise and blah, blah, blah. But other times that doesn't work. And the most effective solution is just to put a boot in someone's ass. And I know that from my own life, you know, you work the peace and the love angles as long as you can and as long as they're working. But if they're not working, then shit has to get a little bit real. You know, um, Like, was anyone going to be able to stop the Holocaust by offering Adolf Hitler some peace and love? Are we going to be able to love Donald Trump into doing something other than all of the worst things he could possibly do, which is what he's doing? So all this was going through my brain. And then someone said, despite it all, I believe that love wins. And um, it was the end of a long day. And there were really nice and smart people there, so I didn't want to get into all my problems with that statement. But here, in my own podcast, oh, we're getting into it, okay? Because this blind belief that love wins is one of the stupidest things I think I've ever heard. Like, love wins? Really? Aren't there, like, millions of people who have died pointless, painful deaths all through history who might disagree about that? Did love win when a comet came from the sky and killed all the dinosaurs? Did it win when a nuclear bomb decimated Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Did love win on November 8th when everyone went and voted for this asshole who's our president-elect now? I just, I can't stand statements like this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that it's just not accurate. Love does not always win, right? That is like the easiest thing to see in the entire world. Um, sometimes love wins sure and sometimes hate wins and um, to just say love wins like simplifies it down to this level that uh, just doesn't serve us at all it's like those other cliches um, like oh there's someone for everyone or everything happens for a reason and that just drives me bananas because try telling a child like me who watched her mother waste away and die I mean, did my mother die at age 32, leaving behind three kids and a husband for a reason? Was there a reason for that, really? Do little children die of cancer for a reason? And and does love win when those things happen? If you say this, well, fuck you, because it's demonstrably untrue. And it is some stupid, childish shit that we only say to make ourselves feel better about the fact that We live in an unfathomably huge universe, and we are incredibly small within it. And our lives are subject to crazy forces we have no knowledge of or control over, which doesn't mean that we're powerless. But it does mean that, according to demonstrable, empirical evidence, love does not just win. And to my mind, it's rather childish to insist that it does. And, you know, someone might respond, well... I don't mean that love always wins. I just mean that in the end, love wins, which my response to that is, again, something like, uh, what? I I don't even know what that means. In the end, love wins. Is there some magical tally summed up in the millisecond before the comet or the warhead hits us where love is going to squeak it out against hate? I just think it's a sloppy kind of dumb sentiment for as sweet as it is. It's, um, it's immature. And it leads me to the second reason why I hate cliches like this, because they put humanity in a very passive position. When love wins, when love does win, it's not because that's just what happens, right? When love does win, it's because the proponents of love make it win. They're smart, smart, they're observant and agile, they're focused and determined, and they make intelligent, impactful moves. And only then does love win. There's nothing baked into the world that says love has to win. We participate in love winning or losing. Each of us does, and we can't lose sight of that. Things change, at least in part, because we change them. Unless you believe that time really is a flat circle and we're all like Hodor, destined to walk this predetermined path for uh, till the end of our days. And maybe that's true. And maybe someday there'll be proof showing it's true. And I will have to eat some crow and um, change up my mental models again to account for predestination. But for now, no, no, I'm not buying it. So yeah, love does not magically just win, and I would very much like for us to stop saying stupid shit like that, please, because honestly, I'm not sure any of this is about love at all. It's not so much about winning hearts and minds and making everyone love everyone else, and that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, we already have the hearts and the minds. Hillary won this election by almost 3 million votes. 70% 70% of Americans believe climate change is real and we should do something about it. 58% of Americans favor policies to help black people get ahead. And 56% of Americans believe abortion should be safe and legal. So we are, we've already got the hearts and minds, as many of them as we need. And secondly, even if we didn't have those hearts and minds, people's feelings are not, are, are not as important as their actions. And their actions can be governed by laws. So as a little thought experiment, let's imagine we have three people. One is horribly misogynist and treats women like shit. The second is misogynist, but maybe hides their feelings because they've, you know, they're not socially acceptable and they treat women fine. And maybe the third person is not misogynist and also treats women fine. For my part, I have no problems with person two or person three. Personally, I don't give a shit what's in your heart as long as you treat me with respect. Like if some guy doesn't think I'm his equal, but also doesn't beat me or force me to bear children I don't want or pass laws limiting my bodily autonomy, fine. I don't care. Think what you want. All I really care about is the way that you act. And the point of this is that people don't have to love each other to act respectfully. They don't have to love each other to treat each other with fairness. Love can't be legislated, but behavior can be. So I'm starting to think that it's not about love. It's not about winning people's hearts. It's not about um, reaching into people's souls and and embiggening them to where they embrace all of their fellow humans. It's not about that at all. What it's about is winning power. And that brings me to my second topic, which is this book I'm reading called The End of Protest by Michael White. Um, I'm only a couple chapters in, but I'm really digging it so far. The author is talking about his experience as one of the co-founders of Occupy Wall Street, and he's sort of breaking down what did and didn't work about that movement. And the fatal flaw that he seems to be pointing to is that Occupy Wall Street and other street um, protests-type movements, they're trying to win people's hearts and people's attention. But he's suggesting possibly what we should be trying to win is not hearts and attention, but sovereignty and power. So he's laying out his argument that the time of massive street protests having any impact on political policy, it's over. Um, we've done that tactic too many times and the powers that be know how to handle and contain street protests. Uh, They even know how to shut them down as we're seeing with the uh, women's March that was being planned for the day after the inauguration, basically just being kept out of Washington at this point. So um, what uh, Michael White is suggesting instead of, running protests and chanting and trying to get people, quote-unquote, on our side. He's saying instead is that if um, you're serious about changing the world as an activist, the most effective thing you can do is move to a small town and run for office and try to enact more democratic processes. Um, And he's done it himself, right? He moved to a small town, um, coastal Oregon, and ran for mayor. He didn't win, but he made a big splash and he's learning a lot for his next run. So, um, yeah, he's saying that that's probably going to be the most effective tactic, right? Is to actually get into the government, have some bodies in there so that um, we can enact more democratic processes. So that we can get the huge influence of money out of the government, Um And it makes a lot of sense to me, right? If we get ourselves into positions where we have more of a say in how things are run, then we can use those positions to organize people and get more good things done. First, at the local level and um, up through the state and federal and even international levels. If we get enough like-minded, progressive, populist people into positions of power, um, you know, we will definitely will have the levers of government in our hands as opposed to um, marching through the streets, trying to get people to sympathize with us. So um, like I said, I'm only a couple chapters in. I will report back as I get through more of the book, but it's making a lot of sense to me. Occupy Wall Street had a big impact on the culture. you know I remember being very moved by um, Hearing people's stories about you know being part of the ninety nine percent, but we haven't seen it have a lot of impact on political policies, right? Quite the contrary, we've swung so far in the opposite direction now that um yeah, it's it's just it just wasn't hugely effective in you know moving the wheels of government to where we want them to be um, and you know political systems and policies are the things that we need to change those are the places that we want to have impact so in order to do that what makes more sense than actually getting into government where we can write and enact those policies so that's what um, that's what I've been up to this week that's what I've been thinking about this week and um, I would really like to hear what you've been thinking about what you've been up to have you gone to any meetings or um, gotten involved with any groups in your community? If so, what's your experience been like? Um, what are you learning and what are you feeling? I would really like to encourage you to um, to get out and go to some sort of training or community meeting. Um, like I said earlier, it not only you know, makes you part of the organization, it's also going to make you feel better. I can almost guarantee it. All right, so um, yeah, drop me a line. Let me know what you've been up to. Um, you can get me at belesscrazy at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on my blog at belesscrazy.com. And if you're digging this podcast, you can subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get all of the episodes immediately when they're released. Um, You can also leave a rating and a review. That would really help to um, get other folks to listen to what we're talking about here. Anyhow, thanks for downloading and listening and stay strong.